Welcome, Dr. Lilia Burette, to Wellness Spring. I'm so grateful to our communal friend, Ilona Munslow, for introducing us. Thank you for having me, Beverly. Nice to meet you. Yes, it's lovely to meet you at last. We've had a lot of communication going back and forth. And I'm just um, blown away with your story. Like, everybody loves a great success story. And your story is truly remarkable. So how about you tell the audience where you grew up, your education and upbringing. And I know they will understand exactly what I mean by remarkable. Um, yes, um, what happened? Yes, I, I grew up in Ukraine. Um, I came to London 26 years ago, so it's a long time ago. Um, I graduated uh, from medical school in Ukraine and I work as a, as a, as a GP uh, in Ukraine. But um, unfortunately, in the uh, early 90s, uh, it was very difficult to be a doctor uh, in Ukraine as um, we didn't get actually wages in in uh, in money, sort of in salary. We had wages in sort of like in vodka and uh, you know and um, uh, or sugar. So it was very difficult to survive. And I had a little boy. I had a son, and I lived with my mother, who is also a doctor. So we had a very little money to live on. And I remember when I wanted to buy, when my son wanted to, you know, ask some for some sweets, I could not um, ask, I could not buy like a hundred gram. I used, I used to ask, can you just wait for me just two sweets? So I have, I have one and my son have one. So he would just quickly eat his and he said, mom, can I have your sweets? And, and I said, okay, of course you can have mine. And I, I thought, you know, I cannot you know carry on like that anymore so my friend used to uh, used to work in pharmace for pharmaceutical company in, in Kiev and he said look maybe you can come to Kiev and um and join me but he uh, spoke in English because he went to English school and I went to normal school so I decided to go to England and learn English and then come back to Kiev and work for pharmaceutical company um, so that's what I did. I mean, obviously, I didn't have any money because you needed for visa and everything else. So, you know, and I had to pay for the school in England. So luckily, my mom's best friend just came from America and she lent me the money. So I had the money to buy a visa, to buy a ticket to London. And I came as a student to study English. But of course, you know, I had no English. So what can you do if you, you don't speak any English? Uh, so um, I had some, you know, I had the numbers, telephone numbers for the people I have never met, but they were very kind. They gave me, I was sleeping on the floor on the mattress in the baby's room uh, until I, you know, learned a little bit English to get some job. Uh, so I, I got job as a cleaner in the hotels and cleaning and then as I learned a little bit of English, I managed to, to make sandwiches in the sandwich bar. And then I progressed into waitressing in a Turkish restaurant and some Greek restaurants. So, uh, yeah, so when I came to London, uh, I really liked the lifestyle and I, I had a dream. I was telling everybody, I want to be a doctor in London. 
And everybody was sort of laughing at me. I said, do you understand? And it's even for English people, very difficult to become a doctor. And, uh, you know, but, you know, if you have a dream, you're really focusing on it and you go for it. And uh, yeah, that's what I did. So I did, I, I was, you know, as a student, I was allowed to do the 20 hours of work. And sometimes, of course, I did more than that because I need to pay for everything. And um, uh, and yes, yeah, so I, I did and I studied English as I, you know, as I, my English was improving, I was um, moving um, to different stages of, you know, different work. And then I uh, I seen an advertisement in the newspaper that they needed a nurse, um, and I applied for the nursing job, uh, and I I got a job as a nurse, uh, which I thought at that time that would be now because it was a great job working for pharmaceutical company actually, uh, Sofitel. At that time, I was it was a new drug called Taxol, which we're using actually now. And uh, I had a patient and I used the uh, patients uh, with advanced breast cancer. I used that that um, soul, that uh, sort of um, chemotherapy. And, um, uh, and I used to um, see the metastatic changes before. I used to measure metastasis in the lungs and door and after and sort of. So I did lots of uh, job which consultants should do and then consultants should encourage started encouraging me saying like you should do the your doctor's degree and um you know become a doctor and they we help you in we sort of um, do the references for you and everything um and then I, you know i was married by that time uh, but then and i told my husband that i want to be a doctor because you know everyone's encouraging me and and he said, no, I mean, I don't want you to be a doctor. So he, anyway, he, di he divorced me because he said I deceived him. And, you know, wow. so, but anyway, yeah, so I had to, I had to move out with my son into council flat. And I lived there for two years while I was doing my two year two, two years of, uh, of uh, medical exams and English. So it took me two years to work very hard like between eight o'clock in the morning and 10 in the evening to do the plub one and plub two and um, in two years I, I lived in 42 pounds a week with my son uh, and we used to eat lots of pasta and, and sometimes butter and sometimes cheese but um, yeah, in two years I passed all the exams and um, and I become a, I become a GP. I did a GP training and um, and I must say, you know, my son was very very. He's the best son ever because he was never a problem. He never gave me any stress. You know, when he was going through the schooling, and I remember, you know, him doing GCSEs, and everybody was asking me, my friends, what what GCs are doing, and I was like. You know, I have no idea. I need to ask him because, <laughs> and he said, "Mom, I'm doing eleven GCSEs because I decided to do Russian and I'm doing this." So, you know, I had no involvement. He was completely independent, choosing, and he had all A's. And he said, "Mom, I want to go to this school because this school is very good, and I need to go to Tiffin. You just need to sign this application form." <laughs> He was he was amazing, you know, and he helped me a lot, you know, to otherwise I think it would be very difficult 
uh, to do it and I'm really grateful for him being such a such a good son and sometimes people ask me you know how you know you brought up alone such a wonderful you know uh, person and I think you know what I think it's very important to uh, the child has an example you know you give them example because he see I was working so hard so and he was working very hard as well so um, wow. I think that's uh, the only reason Wow, you've um, uncovered so much there. Um, first of all, I just wanted to ask you, what was it like in um, Ukraine when you were getting paid with vodka and sugar? Because I, I believe when we've chatted, you mentioned that you had to barter in the grocery shop, you know, and exchange it for food. Absolutely. You have to be lucky because my mom, who was a doctor, she had a, she had a patient who was working in the in the vodka sort of department in a big store. So we used to, used to bring like, um, you know, boxes of vodka because it's a lot. And we used to bring and she used to give us money. So that's how we sort of survived uh, of that. And some people, you know, they were they were using sacks, big sacks of sugar. They used to use to make vodka, and we used to sell that sort of to them as well. So mm. that was and uh, that was incredible experience, you know. And um, yeah, uh, and it's yeah. it's still in Ukraine. I mean, doctors and teachers are the same, you know, like. Uh, most countries you know they don't get paid very well but at that time it was very dramatic yeah well i guess um must be awful to have family still in ukraine at the moment with the war oh yeah, absolutely I, I i'm lucky because i managed to get my family here to london so my mom is 80 years old and mm. i'm really i'm very proud of her because she's so independent you know, she learned, you know, some some English. She's on bubble, you know, I got her the up, bubble up. She learning English and she goes to church and she managed to talk like I'm from Ukraine. Story. I don't speak any English, you know. So and she's managed to communicate, you know, she said uh, no coffee, tea. So um, and she goes shopping and she's learned the numbers and like she, she, she's I'm so, you know, it's incredible at 80 years old, she's, she's adapting because she has no choice. She left everything in Ukraine and she she came here just with a rucksack, you know, she has no, had no clothes. I had to, you know, ask my, my friends and, you know, to donate some clothes because I have a brother and his wife and two kids and my mom. So they came after war here so they lived with me in two bedroom flat for nine mm. months which wow. was a you know a bit of a challenging time and um, yeah so um I managed to get you know to get the accommodation for my brother and his family and for my mom so now they live separate and you no know, but we get together and it's so I'm very happy I'm very grateful that I, you know that I managed to get them sort of um, to, to here to London but I have of course lots of friends um, left and you know imagine the doctors we, we, my friends were doctors and they was Kalashnikov can you imagine they fighting mm. and the, some of them doctors you know you see, I see the pictures they just they operate and they lie on the floor they, they sleep a little bit and they operate again and it's literally in the tent and in this weather, in this cold weather, 
I'm just yeah. I feel so sorry and uh, uh, it's just the really things which dominates my mind a lot you know and um, I do help a lot I'm, I'm I'm sort of standing there um, but I'm trying to not to give money to uh, to charities I, I give money to particular people to particular causes uh, like yeah. when they need something like even like a socks for example or you know because it's winter now they get very cold so wow yeah it's it's very difficult time yeah that's um emotionally heart-wrenching just to think of everything that people are going through at the moment and um yeah i know family are very important to you and obviously it must have been heart-wrenching initially you had to leave your son behind and your mother looked after him and how old was he how long were you separated for because um you know we were separated for nine months right you know and uh, then it was very hard because my son was six years old and seven years old he was going to school in ukraine and he said mom because he didn't have his father and he said mom i don't i don't want to go to school alone because it's a big thing when you start in school in ukraine you know he said yeah. i want you to be with me you know so I came back and I thought, you know, that's it. My English is good now. And I go to Kiev and I will work and I stay in in, in Ukraine. But, you know, once you lived in London and you go to Ukraine, it's very hard again to adjust to life in Ukraine. So mm -hmm. after living a little bit in Ukraine and I decided I go back, because I got I got the job and I wanted to improve my English, so I, I again I got I got a student visa and I and I came back and then I got married and then I brought my son with me, and of course it was very difficult. It was the first time ever, like for for six years when I left my son, we never separated even like for twenty four hours. I always was with him. And I remember him when I was leaving to London, he's running after train and screaming, Mom, don't leave me. And he's like, and I, you know, I was crying all the way from from the, my home to Kiev. I was just, his face was in front of me. And it was very hard. It was very hard. Like I was calling him and it was not cheap as well to call him from London, but I was trying to call him like every week and, and you know, I understand why he was so worried because we have—I have lots of friends where we live in Ukraine. You know, the mothers get married second time in Germany or you know other countries or France or even Czech Republic. And you know what? It was very sad. They have another kids with that second husband, but they never mm. come back to pick up the kids from Ukraine. And these mm. kids are staying with the, with grandmothers. And my friend, uh, my son had friends who were like that. And I think mm. my son always thought that there is a chance that I have another kid in England and I have another family and I will leave him behind. And that's what was very, and I was always, this is what I always was telling you, look, I will, as soon as I can, I'll come and collect you. But then I got married and, my ex-husband he adopted my son because he never had kids and he adopted and obviously i went you know with my husband to ukraine and we brought my son here so he was very very happy and the thing is like 
we we had a pizza and he my son was saying like mom can you imagine we're so rich we can afford whole pizza because in ukraine it was so expensive i said no 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 we only have a one slice of pizza for my son for his birthday that's what his birthday treat a slice of pizza so it's just like incredible yeah incredible changes yeah and um you've had so many more changes and challenges you know especially like when you did get your first job with the um, natural health service then they needed someone with a driving license oh god yes it was incredible i got this amazing job which was even not to get that job it was so challenging because imagine having job as a gp in kingston i mean it's almost impossible it was like 50 people apply for one job and i managed mm -hmm. to get to the interview stage and i had like 10 people waiting in the waiting room and i see all these people oxford graduates you know cambridge graduates all these you know young people and me sitting there and i always wanted to go back because i said i have no chance how can i stand the chances you know with these people and you know and, the, and it's in, in i had an interview and they and they you know and the the the, the interviewer said i think you're going to be a very good gp I want to tell you now that we're giving you a job. I think you have a, you know, soul for the GP and you're going to be very good GP. And I got a job. And imagine I got this job, which I was really happy, which I, I knew I'm going to love it. And um, yeah, the driving license, you know, I, I didn't realize. And I had one month, one month to to, wow. to have a driving license. And I was like, oh my God, my friends was helping me, was driving me and like, you know, and when I when I passed the driving test, he said, yes, you passed it. I started crying. I was like crying. He didn't understand why I was crying. I said, look, you just saved my life. I mean, I really needed that driving license. He said, you should have told me before. I said, oh, well, <laughs> anyway, yeah, I was, I was so happy. Wow. And um, um, who or what inspired you? Because you've had a lot of work with various hospitals, but who or what inspired you to start the, your own practice, the Chelsea practice in um, Harley Street? Um, yeah, first I started in, in Harley Street and then in Sloan Square. I see what happened. Um, I worked as, a, as an NHS, I worked as a salary GP, I had a two partners, there was three of us in a, in a surgery in Battersea, and uh, I I suppose I, I maybe I worked a little bit differently, you know, I, I just love what I do, and I think patients feel that, you know, so when patients come to me and say I have a headache, um, I think what my partners would do, you said, have you tried paracetamol, you know, take paracetamol and then come back. And But, you know, I always like, you know, how long, you know, I take a history. And I think patients like that, you know. And I, I always try to find out why he has this headache. You know, I don't try to treat it, you know. I try mm -hmm. to find out, you know, because there's so many different reasons why you can have a headache. 
And um, I think patients seeing that I, my approach to, to, to their problems are slightly different. So I always have been booked up like two weeks in advance because that's a maximum you can book in the NHS. And then my patients was obviously when they ill, they cannot, you know, wait for two weeks. They, they started asking me, do you have a private practice? I'm happy to pay. And I said, no, no. But then after a while, I said, maybe I should have a private practice. And, mm. you know, and in Harley Street, it was an uh, option when you can uh, rent room by hours. So when mm. I have a patient, I just book, um, you know, book the room for, you know, obviously like seven, eight o'clock after my NHS uh, clinic. And I seen my private patients uh, in Harley Street, 10 Harley Street. And um, when I had enough patients, then I um, I moved to the, to Sloan Square as a part of the Lister Hospital. I I had a room there, um, so yeah. So I I never I didn't start my private practice with a Russian speaking, which sort of became predominantly uh, my practice. My my private practice was predominantly uh, Russian speaking, about seventy percent Russian speaking patients. And so thirty percent was like English speaking from the one I had from before. That's wonderful. We we live in a multicultural world, and obviously you speak a few languages. What does culture or understanding culture mean to you as a doctor in your practice? Oh, well, understanding culture, I think it's very important. Um, I think that's why, um, like when I started in Sloan Square uh, in 2008, I had a many Russian, Ukrainian speaking patients. Because for a patient, when you speak um, your native language, I mean, they can relax and they can tell you so much more. And my practice, because of that, I mean, I never advertised. Uh, but word of mouth and I managed to grow my practice very fast and I had the most patients who live around uh, you know um, Sloan Square and uh, in central London they all became my patients and um, the reason I also want you know think it's very important um, because it's um, it allows also me to know uh, what the preferences, uh, what the what expectations um, the, the 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 patients have from the doctor. Uh, I think it's very important, also cultural thing. So when the war started, you know, I wrote to the parliaments that I wanted to see Ukrainian families who come to London because I know the culture, I know the language. And I wrote that I'm happy to see um, all this, um, just let them know about me. But somehow the government was not interested which was very strange, you know, because I thought I would take the pressure from the NHS. Uh, they don't have enough interpreters, you know, and I even wrote to my MP and I have a friend who used to be a member of parliament. So I was really trying hard to help my, 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 my Ukrainian refugees so they would be at least have some sort of consolation, you know, living in a foreign country and if you're ill and you can't talk you know English it's it, it, it's even for English people it's difficult when you go to NHS imagine if you if you're foreigner you don't speak 
the language. So what I did, I did it like telephone consultations and I spent hours and hours helping people. But what can I do if I can't do the blood test? You know, I can't pay for everybody or I cannot yeah. do the, um, you know, the scan or something like that. And I found this so stressful, you know, so unfortunately, yeah, so the, I, I, I tried to approach them uh a few charities and i said you know can you give me some money so i can pay for the blood test for example just emergency blood test you know but i couldn't yeah. get anywhere so i was very disappointed with charities because i understood the charity is a big business it runs as a business they get themselves very big wages you know mm -hmm. and for the whoever works usually family members work and they spend and probably like 30 percent of the money goes to actual charity and i found it that and since then i never give any money to charity to be honest i just give to particular people i know and i try to get money from whatever for my friends so and I, you know, they need like a vehicle. Like recently I bought a vehicle. I, I collected some money. We bought the vehicle and, and sent to Ukraine. So, yeah, so I'm doing this. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I tried the, to going back to your question. So I, I, I understand and it's very important to know the culture. Um, and um, that's why I think uh, NHS is struggling as well because there's so many, um, you know, foreign patience you have and if you don't speak English it's a big barrier yeah oh it saddens me to think that the government and the charities and so forth weren't very open to it because especially you know those people have gone through so much you know in the yeah. war and as you said coming to a foreign country and yeah. it would have been nice to have a warm, welcoming doctor who speaks their own native language. Anyway, good on you for doing your best. Uh, that's very admirable. And I know when you first um, started getting busy, you engaged a business coach. So how did that help to shape the development of your private practice? And what were the key lessons you learned during the process? Oh, well, yes, uh, it it was um, a very good idea to get a business coach because, you know, I am a good as a doctor, but I'm, I was not a businesswoman. Uh, first of all, for me, it was a bit strange to charge for my consultations because NHS, it was all free of charge and charging people for something I did it for free was very difficult uh, for me. So I was charging very little. Uh, but then, of course, you know, I had a, I had to pay my rent and everything. So, yes. Yeah, so and also I was doing everything myself. I didn't have a secretary. So business, um, my business coach said I have to employ a secretary and start sort of uh, uh, delegate some sort of task and not doing everything myself. And that was a very good idea. So since I, I had a very good I was very lucky. I had a very good secretary. Uh, who had some medical degree uh, in Ukraine. And so she understood all the diagnoses and the problems and the sy symptoms. And she was with me for a very long time. And um, yes, and then uh, sort of, uh, yes, yeah, so then I understood the principle that you have an overhead and you need to pay, so you have to charge patients. And from little by little, I had to 
sort of increase my my charge for the consultations but um yes i think it's a it's a uh it's very important to have a good coach to to start the practice yeah and to guide you because i know you've told me that um the coach is saying it's not per hour what you're charging it's for your years of training and education and experience absolutely so that, at that time i had yeah quite a long uh, yeah absolutely education and time and uh yeah that's what i was charging for and uh, that's true yeah i forgotten about that yeah, yeah so that to, was easy yeah. yeah you have to remember that and value your worth and um i know that you believe prevention is better than cure and it's very evident in your practice. So can you share what led you to adopt this philosophy and its impact on the services you offer? Um, yes, I do believe that prevention is better than cure in a way that even uh, something like a cancer, uh, if it's spotted earlier, it's much, much easier to treat you have more options of treatments and i always try to tell my patients so by doing that like a like a sort of checkup every um, you know 6 months or even once a year uh, it's really really beneficial and i always tell my patients so what you're doing today it's actually you you planting a seed for something in 10 years time and in five years time so it's very important so if you want to be healthy in five years time like to five and uh, it's very important what you do now and to do now is to being healthy and doing all the health checks and i do like this triple health checks which is a blood test urine test and stool test at the same time and I even sort of created this uh, uh, network of people who visiting patients at home. So don't, you don't need to do nothing. You know, I have a nurse who come to your home. You just need to prepare your stool sample and she takes the blood and take the urine sample and take to the lab. So it's a very minimal effort from the patient um, just to do this sort of, uh, you know, prevention, like a like a screening sort of uh, a test um, and I think I really think it's very important uh, because you know I do that and I do the mammogram and just saying explaining for just recently had a patient who had a mammogram six months ago and then she did the blood test and it showed and she didn't really wanted to do the blood test because she had a mammogram but then blood tests showed that she had the blood test was the uh, the result was higher than normal uh and then when we did mammogram she had lots of calcification so even in six months time she already developed calcification so without that blood test she would wait for another mammogram it would be too late uh, so that's I always explain how important because this blood test, like a tumor markers, they are very sensitive and they're very good, they're very advanced, and we have to use it to our advantage to prevent to prevent uh, some sort of uh, like a cancer um, conditions. Yeah, um, yeah, that's great, and. It's always good to have the guidelines and the markers and 
you know, it's like ticking the box. Yes, I'm healthy. And um, you mentioned that you do house visits. And I also know that you do, you offer 24-7 services. So out of the hours, GP, how did that come about? Well, you see, what happened from the very beginning, I gave to, to my patients, they always have my number, my private number. I know it's very unusual. None of my colleagues, you know, they only have, my patients only have the, the secretary's number, but my patients have my, my private number. So they can WhatsApp me or they can call me uh, anytime. But I must say, practicing that, my patients never take advantage of that. They never, hardly ever call me unnecessarily, but they know if they, at 11 o'clock, for example, they have a problem, they can call me and I will sort it out. I have, it depends on the problem. I can either tell them you have to go to A&E or I say, okay, I, I send in prescription to the pharmacy and you go and get the medication and you get medication delivered from the pharmacy literally in an hour. So I do, I think I provide like a very much VIP medical services to my patients. <laughs> Yes, it does sound like VIP luxury concierge service. So um, the, your patients are very lucky that you're so caring. And I know you your practice covers a, a spectrum of healthcare needs, including women's and men's health and family planning. So what inspired you to offer such a comprehensive service? And how do you tailor them to make individual needs yes i mean that this how i think private practice is different from nhs because nhs you have a protocol for for example for one condition and it's applied for the million of people but i think private practice is very much tailor-made for the particular person i can for example uh just explain that i have a patient with anorexia a little girl, 15 years old girl. And you know the treatment for anorexia is antidepressants and uh, she's even built antipsychotic on olanzapine. And she came to me for mm. the different reason. You know, she came for the source road and obviously then I knew she's anorexic. Um, and then she's been, you know, the mother was telling that they've, they've been going to psychiatrists for three years. Um, and she, she was really suffering. Her BMI was like 17.5, which is very dangerous. Um, and, you know, I, I always try to help people. And uh, I said, look, let's, shall we just do that, like a checkup? And they agreed. So, and I did her hormone profile. And I noticed that she has very high testosterone and very low estrogen. And I and I and I know the high testosterone, what symptoms you can have, like all this anxiety and and um, and then I suggested the treatment. I said, shall we try the contraceptive part patches and then we sort of level your hormones a little bit so they're not gonna be so sort of uh, different. And you know, I tried the contraceptive patches and after three weeks, uh, this girl came to me, she was crying, she was hugging me. She said, I feel so normal. I just feel normal. Mm. 
I feel so happy and she was smiling and her mother was crying and you know and she feels I feel normal and she's just doing her GCSEs and she, she's just happy girl you know and um, I don't say it's a applicable to everybody but I think it's so important because when you have diagnosis anorexia you just go by protocol but everyone's that anorexia could be different you know could be different but just the same symptom but different route so I like to dig in into the root of each problem of my patients like a I feel sometimes like I'm a Sherlock Holmes, you know, I want to find the culprit who did it. You know? <laughs> and I go into my books and I go into internet now, you know, you you can find everything. And I and I find it and I find and I treat the patient and um, just with anorexia. And I told to my to my colleagues, you know, and I said, look, if you have an anorexic patient, send to me. I'm happy to explore and and treat them and make them healthy. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful news because anorexia, I used to be a registered general nurse and psychiatric nurse. Yeah. And, you know, and when I was growing up, everybody needed to be stick thin and looking at the models on telly. And, you know, even today, everybody's got with social media that um, angst about looking a particular way and am I too thin, am I too fat? But, you know, lately, post-COVID um, lockdown, my partner and I have been traveling and we've noticed that obesity is a huge problem, like everywhere we go. Yeah, so yes. I was going to ask you, you know, when, what was it like in London um, in your practice when you had to, everybody had the COVID lockdown and were you giving out the vaccinations? Were they coming to you or doing home visits? I did lots of home visits, but um, luckily I didn't have any vaccines because it's only yeah. NHS could, could vaccinate patients. Yeah. And my approach, I didn't encourage patients to have the vaccines. They had to decide themselves yeah. uh, whether they want to vaccinate or not. Uh, to be honest, um, I prefer to suggest to my patients something I would do myself. Um, you do and I I didn't agree with vaccine I didn't believe because it's a very short cut and was not tested enough for me to suggest to my patients you know I was worried about the you know the side effects and I was worried about the consequences what happened in three to five years to my patients and I didn't want to be the one who suggested that but yeah. um, you know they had an HS you know, GPs and they could, whoever wanted to have a vaccine, um, they had a vaccination. But of course, you know, the COVID was, um, was, was a bit, bit different. There were lots of patients who had a very high dimer, you know, the blood, you know, the blood yeah. clots and that. So I did blood, did blood tests myself and I used to go and see my patients and I did a blood test and I see if somebody had a, a high dimer I, I prescribe a Pixaban and I try to you know to save patients I can tell you know because I was looking after my patients a lot and I never had I had only one patient who had been admitted to the hospital I managed all my patients by myself by doing home visits 
um, when possible and um, and just sort of advising on the phone. And I had a pharmacist sort of involved as well. So when they need the medication and I, I had a pharmacy who delivered the medication, just dropped through the letterbox. So, yeah. you know, I, I sort of, um, you know, I prepared myself and I also had a lots of emergency medication with me. Uh, for the patient, so for example, when I do the blood test and I see the CRP is 250, for example, which is the highest I ever seen, I knew mm. this patient need antibiotics, you know, because that's uh, so much inflammation, the body just cannot cope with that. So, yes, yeah, so I did lots of home visits and, uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, many because of the, you know, the, the, the restrictions and the, in the many patients put weights on and it was a big problem and people start eating more and cooking more and, you know, and drinking more, unfortunately, as well. So it's a yeah. big problem now, yeah. Well, that was wonderful that you stood true to your morals and what you believe in. And you gave the patients a, a choice. And I know for yourself, you've got a holistic approach to your clients and also to life. And you only recommend what you do for when we chatted earlier, you were saying, you know, that you do yoga a few times a week and meditation and walk in yeah. nature. So if a, if a client asks you for, you know, health and lifestyle advice, for example, what would you tell them? Well, I always tell them that, you know, that it's important to look after your body um, because your body is priceless. Like, for example, if you buy like expensive car, a Lamborghini, you just look after it so well, you know. Mm -hmm. This is exactly how to, you have to look after your body. You know, you have to look well and to look well, it's like you have to eat very well um and i always suggest like two meals a day probably would even be maximum you, you need to be to stay healthy um and uh, also the exercise like yoga meditation and walking um not so much jogging probably because of this being overweight you know if you're jogging a lot your knees are gonna suffer so i prefer just a lot of walking and uh, and um exercise like aerobic exercise and uh yeah and breathing exercise um yeah so i i suggest lots of and also reiki i have a very good reiki specialist and i believe in reiki i tried reiki myself and it just um you know it, it's amazing uh you can do distance re distant reiki which was completely for me was like amazing because I was at home and my my Reiki friend she was you know and I and I, I could feel her hand on my, on my hand I, like somebody like you know like an iron iron somebody put and I could yeah. feel the heat I say how is it possible you are in once for I mean part me and I could feel the heat it was incredible so yes I suggest to my patients Reiki as well um, you know, and I, I always suggest to be very open minded, you know, and uh, you, because you never know what you can experience. I was I was very open minded. I tried Reiki and I'm very grateful. <laughs> well, I'm I didn't know that about you. And I I'm actually a Reiki master and teacher. Oh. And oh. my Reiki journey started through um 
a personal drama in my life where, where my jealous, possessive partner was trying to strangle me. So I had to go into hiding and he was stalking me and I developed a huge die. And I didn't believe in it because of my nursing background and religious background. I didn't um, believe in it at the time. I thought it was a bit hocus pocus and a friend was mm -hmm. encouraging me to have it. And a load of dramas ended up, even the day I was supposed to have the operation on my eye. And finally she said, right, you're coming with me to have some Reiki. And because I'd lost so much weight and I was manic and not sleeping, I just agreed. And I had the Reiki. I was in Australia. I didn't feel comfortable, didn't believe in it. I thought, oh, no, he's going to fall asleep and hit my eye. And um, I couldn't wait to get off the, the bed. And a week later, I on the weekend, a few days later, I went to Wales from Australia. And a week later, someone came to visit and they said, where did you have the operation? And I was like, what operation? And this sty was so big, I couldn't even open my eye. I hadn't, because of stress, I didn't even know my eye was open and it had gone. And yeah, and then we went for a walk in our local town. I seen a big sign, Reiki available, and it was never there when I lived there. And um, people were a bit skeptical. And yeah. went inside the shop and he said, Oh, yeah, my teacher's in Australia. She's a psychologist. So I was like, She's teaching. And I was like, Oh, it must be okay. He offered me a treatment. He said, if you can get there. And he was living a few doors away from my sister. Wow. It was minutes walk. And the next day I woke up and it was like having an, an awakening, you know, because I could forgive my ex-partner. I could see beauty in everything. And yeah, but distance Reiki is good. And I've been helping so many people with that yeah. over the years um no matter where i live but um yeah so it sounds like you've got a good network of people around you and i know um your coach suggested business networking and how important has that been in your role as a doctor well it's very important you know to know um uh who your patients are gonna like especially you know if it's Russian-speaking patients, they don't get on with all the consultants, all the doctors. So over the years, you know, I've chosen the consultant, my network, like I have a cardiologist, I have a gynecologist, you know, who I, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm, I trust them, they will go to do the, the good job and they're going to report back to me if something they, they're not happy with, so I can report to my patients. Because sometimes, you know, the patient received the letter, they don't understand what they're talking about. So I will have to translate and put in layman terms and explain what happened. So I I work a lot with with, with different consultants. Uh, I'm like in the middle between the patient and the consultant. Um, and I think it's important for my patients as well. So when I refer, uh, they know uh, they're in a good hands. Uh, because I'm a bit skeptical, hardly seats, uh, you know, sometimes medicine is too much a business. Mm. And sometimes they put business before a doctor, which I don't like. And sometimes I have to fight for my patients, <laughs> talking mm -hmm. to consultants and saying, would you do this to your mother? And they say, honestly, no. 
and I say, okay, then you're not treating my patients either, because you know it's just it's just not. You have to you you give the Hippocratic oath, and I have to stand for it. You know the first thing, it's you 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 it's do not harm. You know, and if I see yeah. like it it it's harmful, and then I I don't like it, and I I'm gonna fight for my patients for the for the right thing. And recently, what I also discovered that you always have to have second opinion. That's what I tell to my patient. When you go into oncologist and they tell you you have this little lump, you need to remove it. So it's not easy to remove lump from the lung, you know. <laughs> and um, and I always say, look, you have to have second opinion. You have to go to different countries, Switzerland or Germany, and have second opinion. And then I will be happy <laughs> for you to have a to have an operation. But before that, no. You have to have second opinion because I'm always worried in the back of my mind. It could be unnecessarily. Wow, you're you're an absolute gem. That's so wonderful <laughs> to hear. And considering your experience, um, what advice would you give to other doctors that are going to enter private practice, especially regarding the business skills essential for its success? Oh yes, I think everybody has to have like a business coach, uh, at least at the, at the very beginning, because you can be a very good doctor but not very good businessman. Like I, I was, I was never a good businesswoman. I don't think I'm still not very good businesswoman, but I, um, I'm just. It, it's a very difficult sort of um, task to have a successful uh, business practice. Um, but um, I mean, depends what you. I mean, I love what I do, and I think it's very. You should go into private practice if you really love what you do. You don't go into practice private practice because of you want to get wealthy. Uh, I don't think I'm wealthy. You know, when my patients uh, recently uh, came to pick up prescription from my home, my patient was shocked that I don't live in a palace somehow, like Buckingham Palace, mm -hmm. you know, because I have so many patients and I and I charge, you know, for the consultation. Somehow my patients imagine I'm like super, super rich, you know, but I'm not. Uh, you know, yeah, I pay taxes and, you know, and um, everything else but i think it's important you can have a very successful uh medical pro private practice if you really love what you do and you love your patients and they love you back and there is like exchange of energy um and i'm very happy like when when i treat the patients and i say thank you and i feel good and i feel this good energy it gives me this good energy and that's um, I never advertise and word of mouth, you know, you know, gonna it's just this is how I grow my practice through word of mouth. So that's why my suggestion is yeah, so you have to have a practice manager, um, business uh, business manager, but um, very important that you love what you do. That's wonderful words of advice. And if there was one thing you could do to change the world, what would that be? Well, considering situation in Ukraine, I would demolish war, wars all over the world. Uh, I would be so happy if there would be no war anywhere, no people not dying unnecessarily, completely unnecessarily. You know, Ukrainian people are defending their they home, they they 
families, you know, and they dying for it. And there's so many already dead. And in the name of that, I would like to abolish all the wars, wars around the world. That would be my wish. That's a wonderful wish. And may there be peace on earth. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'd like to thank you for all you are and all you do. And thank you so much for giving up your precious time today. Thank you so much for having me, Beverly. Thank you.